Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. Well, good morning once again. Today's lesson is resurrecting Jesus. History, metaphor, and myth. You know, I do a lot of studying. I really do. And I study from just every angle. And um, I like learning about these subjects. And so today is Easter Sunday. And as you know, we've just been through the period of time that Christianity calls the Holy Week, the Passion Week. Now, obviously, since unity is based uh, on the Christian model, I want to talk about this subject today, this particular story. As the subtitle says, I will be addressing the subject from the point of view of history, of metaphor, and of myth. Of course, as I usually do with biblical stories, I will touch upon tradition. And I want to be clear, it is not to be critical. It's not even to be controversial. It's just an attempt to get you to understand that we truly must re-look at our view of the nature of God. It is very important. The Bible is clear that the, a fountain cannot pour forth both sweet and bitter water. And in unity, we believe that, that God is good and only good. And that's all. Because if it was otherwise, then God would be like us instead of us being like God. First, historically, though, I do use that word loosely because contrary to some popular belief, the Bible is not a history book. It really is not. That means that some of the events took place and some of them maybe not. It implies as to this week and brings up the question of whether there was an actual physical resurrection or not, as tradition believes. Unity takes the approach that or the, in, in the question of the form that, is it necessary to have there been a physical resurrection in order to make the story true or valid in the spiritual sense? This is called a myth, and early storytellers relied heavily upon myths to convey a spiritual meaning. Modern man has lost the relevance and the power of a myth. We associate myths with something that is not true. We say, oh, that's just a myth. We always say that. So I looked up the definition of myth, and this is what it says. A traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events. That's the old definition of a myth. The new one, which is number two, says a widely held but false belief or idea. That's the one that we use as a myth these days. As for the physical resurrection, biblical scholar Marcus Borg says, to argue that the Christian faith depends upon the historicity of the empty tomb is an enormous distraction. I think it risks turning the Christian faith, 
faith into believing in a past event, in the happiness of a spectacular event, rather than Christian faith being a relationship with the living Christ in the present. In other words, the insistence on a physical resurrection converts the story to something that is external and a spiritual meaning is something that is internal. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within. Continuing with the history, the word passion comes from the Latin root, which means suffering. So next time you're passionate about somebody, maybe it's because they're making you suffer. I don't know. <laughs> Before coming to unity, having grown up a Catholic, the entire of the story of the Passion Week was honestly very troubling for me. I mean, I've been asking questions from nuns when I was seven years old. I was asking the nun that if God knew everything and was everywhere present, why it was necessary for me to confess to a man, to a priest who was a man. I was asking these questions at the age of seven, and I'm still asking questions, and I'll always ask questions. That's who I am. The idea that Jesus sent God to bar that Jesus was sent by God to barbarically suffer and die for the sins of mankind just never made sense to me. It didn't sit well with me. I love a lot of theology and theologically to think that, that, that this was the plan devised by an all-powerful and loving God to make amends with humankind seemed very difficult to understand. And since that point, my position has shifted from very difficult to impossible. And I think maybe a lot of people in unity feel that way as well. After all, as God is all-powerful and does intervene in the affairs of man, as tradition tells us, then why not just forgive man? If Obama can use executive power, why not God? <laughs> what is the point and the need for the drama, the suffering by his only son? The story is premeditated melodrama on steroids. It really is. And to further muddy the theological waters, tradition tells us that through the crucif crucifixion, Jesus, which is God incarnate, paid the price for salvation. He redeemed us. So again, these are questions that are very serious. And so I looked up redeem. What does redeem mean? Redemption means the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Well, if that's what took place, then that raises several questions. And the first is, what is it that God Jesus needed to be gained or regained? Because if they needed to gain or regain something, God did, then somehow he's missing something. And that defies the explanation of what God is, complete. It, do, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Second is, how is it that God owed something to somebody? And the third, when I heard this one time in one of the, uh, those great courses, lessons, like, I never thought about it that way. It says, and who was the price paid to? If God is all-powerful, who, who was the price paid to? If you're not clear... I'll tell you what, what the traditional answer is, just so you'll know. It says that 
See, it was man who owed an infinite debt to God for disobedience. And, God is, and man is not capable of paying an infinite debt. So <clears throat> what had to take place was God had to take the form of man and suffer and die to make the payment. It's, it's, very, it's, it's a very uh, troubling story for me, as I said. And I sometimes wonder, if you had never heard that story before, ever, in your life, and someone told you that, what would you really think? I think we just, sometimes, we just don't think about things. We just accept what we're told, and, and that's just the way it is. But again, in all fairness, once you really begin to study the, the consciousness and the beliefs of man at that time period, it's not a very difficult thing to understand how it is that they came to take on this story as the story of the relationship of God to man. Now, one final thought I want to say about this, and, and this makes it even all the more puzzling for me, and that is that the story itself is not even consistent with the teachings of the person upon who the religion was based upon. So I want to talk a little bit about metaphor and allegory now. This is what an allegory is. Allegory is defined as such. It is a story, a poem, a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. And the synonyms are metaphor and parable. Now, if you were here last time, I did a lesson on the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and if you're not, weren't here, then I will... I'm going to do a quick review because it's very important. Because in Easter, we're talking, as I said before, we're talking about the idea of, of divine justice, what I said. It's called the Odyssey. It's about redemption. And I think the parable of the prodigal son very much talks about redemption. So let me review that real, real quick. The story starts with the son, who it says it represents each of us as well as all of us. And, and the situation is that he is at home with his father, and the father has everything. So what is that? Like we were in heaven. It's a garden of Eden. It's the same story. And then what happens is that then the son wants to do his own thing. He wants to exercise his free will. So he asks for the father for his share, and he takes off into the far country, it's called. And I like to always use that as a reference to uh, us taking form in, in the manifest world. This is the far country, the world of duality. So he does that. He squanders everything really quickly, hits rock bottom, and then he is in total shame. And he decides he wants to return home. His plan for redemption, the son's plan for redemption, is to go back to the father, ask for forgiveness, and say, Father, I am unworthy for you to be my father I want you to hire me as a servant because I have really disobeyed and made a mess of things. So he was in the garden. He left, made a mess. Now he's trying to get back into the kingdom, the father's kingdom. Isn't that kind of like what we're doing? We're seeking to get back to heaven type thing. That's the same story. That's what I'm telling you. But what happens when he gets back to the father and he asks for forgiveness? And when I read that last time, and some of you were really, I know Pepe keeps saying, oh my goodness, 
You know, because sometimes, we, again, we don't think about these things. What happens, he asked the father for forgiveness, and read the story. The father doesn't even acknowledge the petition as if it doesn't matter to him what you did. What matters is that you're returning home. That's all that matters to me. So he completely ignores what he says. He doesn't even address it. And what does he do? He, grab, he, he, he calls to grab everything that there is, the best he's got, and he has a big party, a big celebration because his son has returned home. Where is the redemption in that? This, my friends, is called unconditional love. And it's extremely important that we understand something here. Extremely important. I highlighted and capitalized that extremely. Because one of the things that we teach here in Unity is the distinction, and this is big, the distinction between Jesus and his life and the story that was created by man about Jesus and his life. And I want you to know something very important. That's parable of the, of the, of the prodigal son are the words of Jesus. They're not the words of Paul. They're not the word of the gospel writers, once again, who we don't know who they are. That's a fact. In my study of philosophy, I, have lear I learned that Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, last week I came across this and I said, wow, I had never heard that, but it fit me, fits me to a T. It says, Une unexamined faith is not worth believing. I agree with that. Me, anyway. I don't know about you. Is it really that strange to rethink everything that has been told to us and everything that we're taught and tradition? Is it really that strange? Well, you think about it. Who did this? Jesus. He loved everyone, but the one thing that drove him nuts were the Pharisees because they were so into tradition that they were rigid to the point of they could do. They had 600 something. You know that the Jews have 600, what, 20 something commandments or 613 or whatever it is. It's a bunch. And Jesus said, You don't need all that stuff. There are two commandments. There's love God and there's love their neighbor. It's over. This is it. So changing our views of how we see things is a very important thing and a very difficult thing to do because it is ingrained in us from the beginning. It is way deep in our subconscious. So I want to try to keep chipping away at this idea by talking a little bit about the metaphysical interpretation of, a, of the Easter story. See, Christmas and Easter are the two big stories in the Christian calendar. Unity teaches that Christmas is not so much of the birth of the Christ, because the Christ is eternal. It says so in John. In the beginning was the Logos. They're associating that with, with the Christ. This is something that is transcendent, that is above time and space, has always been and always will be. So it's not the birth of the Christ, it is, again, a, sto a spiritual story that is telling us that it is 
the birth of the Christ consciousness in us, in man, in that particular man, Jesus, is the story. But if you're going to stay in that story that is only for that particular man, then you lose the point of the story. It's a general comment. It says it's the birth of the Christ consciousness within each man. Emerson says, God enters into every man through a private door. It's an individual experience. If you don't understand anything else, understand that. Nobody else can have that experience for you. Who can learn how to swim for you? Who? They can tell you how to swim. They can show you a video. They can show you all the strokes. They can do all you want. But what do you have to do? You have to jump in the water. You must learn how to swim. The same with this. This is what Fillmore says about, about the, these two major Christ, uh, Christian topics. The first one is Christmas. He says in the revealing word, Christ, birth of. The birth of the Christ is the beginning in the inner realms of consciousness of a higher set of faculties which when grown to full statue, stature will save the whole man from ignorance, sickness, and death. When grown to full stature. So, if you notice that, he is implying a sort of, or addressing a sort of unfoldment. That even when that Christ consciousness is born in you, there is still this period of unfoldment. And this is true if you study the synoptic gospels. And I don't know how much you know about this stuff, but the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are considered the synoptic gospels because they're close in, in their structure and how they explain things. So they're like, you could synopsis, put a synopsis about them. So the words, they're called the synoptic gospels. And it's very much true in those. Jesus was very much a human. He went through an unfolding. He did the trials, the periods, and his doubts. He did get upset with the Pharisees. He, he was very much a man. And by the time you get to John, because I've also learned that the story developed naturally, like all stories do. And so by the time you get to John, Jesus is not really a man anymore. He's full-blown Christ, you know, logos from the get-go. And so, but if you put the two together, or well, I did anyway, then what I get is an eternal being that is having a human experience, which is what we say here in unity. And it would seem that we lost that that awareness of our divinity. And Jesus came to remind us that that is who we are. It's the beginning of the road home. But there is still that wilderness we must go through. There are still doubts that we must go through sometimes. And look at even Jesus in, in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, interesting word, in the garden before the, the crucifixion. He was having doubts. You know, he says, if you can take this away from me, do it. And he, then he finally said, no, no, no. He, 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 just, he changed. He realized, no, it is something that I must do. And the fact is, Jesus' story is telling us that we all bear our crosses. We all have to crucify our old ways of seeing things. It's like that uh, in the cover. I chose that because it signifies something very important because I always talk about 
that in unity we don't teach salvation, we teach transformation. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching because he was always saying that you must see things differently. When he, uh, people ask him, when is, the, when is the kingdom coming? You know, is, is it in four months or something? Is it four months? Uh, I mean, in, in the future? And he said, no, look at, the, look at the fields. I mean, some people say in four months we will have the harvest. He said, but the harvest is here and now, now. It is here. So it's a transformation of, as I said from the beginning, of changing the way in which we see the things that we see. And you're going to stay in the same spot until you start doing that. Now, of, East, of Easter, Fillmore says in the revealing word, the awakening and rising of the spiritual consciousness of the I am in man, which has been dead in trespasses and sins and buried in the tomb of materiality. That's a pretty picture. <laughs> I mean, with words, that, it's like Gibran. That's a pretty picture with words. I like it because I see the whole thing. And oh, happy days I put here because that is the message today. Oh, happy days that Jesus triumphed over death. And he's telling us, you can do the same thing because we're the same way. I, I cannot be different from you. How can I be different from you? How is such a thing possible? Now let's think about the meditation. I like to recap the whole Bible sometimes. And if you think about it, the entire Bible is a metaphysical interpretation of our entire process in, in a summary, if you look at it from the overview. And it starts from the Adam consciousness when we took form into, when we went to the far country, when we took form in the material world, dualistic world. And then it proceeds... To, to the Moses. And then Moses represents when we start understanding that there are laws in place. And so he's given the Ten Commandments. So we start, instead of the craziness, the, the barbaricness that we were before, now we start getting into a more formed society and seeing things that there are laws involved. But it's still rather mechanical in the sense. <clears throat> then, you come, then along comes Jesus and breaks that mechanical mold and, and gets us into a new law. And it's the law of love. The highest law there is. That's why they said there's only two laws. And they're both love. So he broke the mechanical laws. Not that they don't, uh, uh, that they don't exist or, or they don't apply. They still do. But as long as you live in those old laws, you will be in those old laws. It's transformation again. You must live in the new law. In the law of love. And then you become the law of love. That's how it works. In unity we say that Jesus was the way shower. He is the great example. Not the great exception. As such his story is our story. This is the way storytellers told stories. This is what we must understand. So in unity, we're not governed by the, whether there was a physical resurrection or not. Because we take the Bible to words. It says we are created in the image and likeness of God at the very beginning. This is our starting point. Anything else gets mixed up. And what is the image and likeness of God? Well, what is God like? The Bible says he's spirit. He's love. Then that's what we are. 
It's real simple. Reverend Linda gave me a book last week to look at, and it's called The Way of the Christ. And it says this of Easter. It says, Easter is not so much the celebration of a man rising from the dead as it is the recognition that the Christ self is always bursting forth from the tomb. The Christ is always rising out of the limitation, the ignorance, and the apparent darkness of life. The lesson of Easter is that we are immortal now. This reminds me of Meister Eckhart, wonderful mystic Roman Catholic priest. He says, the only begotten is forever begetting. That is a reference to the Christ always bursting forth from the tomb all the time. So I want to leave you with this final thing, idea about, about, less, about Easter. <clears throat> I think I messed up my notes. It's okay. I remember it. And that is the idea of living in the third day. When I came across that one time, I said, that is very, very interesting. How does that work? And the idea is that we place our focus too much upon the crucifixion on Good Friday. You know, they do all the passion things and stuff like that, and that's okay. But that's not the focus of this, les of this week, of this lesson. That is not the focus. The focus is the resurrection. That's the third day. And sometimes it's a good lesson for us to, to apply even on a daily basis. Because sometimes situations come up to us. Any given thing. An illness. A divorce. Losing your job or something. And the idea is to take it from the approach of the third day. Don't react. Well, you're going to react but don't overreact to the appearance, to the crucifixion. Because at the end of the crucifixion, there is the resurrection that is coming. There will be a sunshine after the storm. There always is. And that's what the lesson truly, truly tells us. That we will rise above all all obstacles, including death. Amen.